Chapter Five, Part Two, of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. How I Found Livingston, Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingston by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter 5, Part 2 Through Ukwe, Ukami, and Udoi to Yuskua Previous to our departure on the morning after this, Maganga, chief of the fourth caravan, brought me the unhappy report that three of his pagasis were sick, and he would like to have some doa, medicine. Though not a doctor, or in any way connected with the profession, I had a well-supplied medicine chest, without which no traveller in Africa could live, for just such a contingency as was now present. On visiting Maganga's sick men, I found one suffering from inflammation of the lungs, another from the Makungaroo, African intermittent. They all imagined themselves about to die, and called loudly for Mama, Mama, though they were all grown men. It was evident that the fourth caravan could not stir that day. So leaving word with Maganga to hurry after me as soon as possible, I issued orders for the march of my own. Excepting in the neighbourhood of the villages which we have passed, there were no traces of cultivation. The country extending between the several stations is as much a wilderness as the desert of Sahara, though it possesses a far more pleasing aspect. Indeed, had the first man, at the time of the creation, gazed at his world, and perceived it of the beauty which belongs to this part of Africa, he would have had no cause of complaint. In the deep thickets, set like islets amid a sea of grassy verdure, he would have found shelter from the noonday heat, and a safe retirement for himself and spouse during the awesome darkness. In the morning he could have walked forth on the sloping sward, enjoyed its freshness, and performed his abulations in one of the many small streams flowing at its foot. His garden of fruit-trees is all that is required. The noble forests, deep and cool, are round about him, and in their shade walk as many animals as one could desire. For days and days let a man walk in any direction, north, south, east, and west, and he will behold the same scene. Earnestly as I wished to hurry on to Unanembi, still a heartfelt anxiety about the rival of my goods, carried by the fourth caravan, served as a drag upon me, and before my caravan had marched nine miles, my anxiety had risen to the highest pitch, and caused me to order a camp there and then. The place selected for it was near a long, struggling sluice, having an abundance of water during the rainy season, "'draining, as it does, two extensive slopes. "'No sooner had we pitched our camp, "'built a boma of thorny acacia "'and other tree branches "'by stacking them round our camp "'and driven our animals to grass, "'than we were made aware of the formidable number "'and variety of the insect tribe, "'which, for a time, was another source of anxiety, "'until a diligent examination of the several species dispelled it. As it was a most interesting hunt which I instituted for the several specimens of the insects, 
I here append the record of it, for what it is worth. My object in obtaining these specimens was to determine whether the genus Glossina morsitans of the naturalist, or the tetsi, sometimes called setsi, of Livingstone, Varden, and Gumming, said to be deadly to horses, was amongst them. Up to this date I had been nearly two months in East Africa, and had yet seen no tetsi, and my horses, instead of becoming emaciated, for such is one of the symptoms of the tetsi bite, had considerably improved in condition. There were three different species of flies which sought shelter in my tent, which, unitedly, kept up a continual chorus of sounds. One performed the basso profondo, another a tenor, and the third a weak contralto. The first emanated from a ferocious and fierce fly, an inch long, having a ventral capacity for blood quite astonishing. This larger fly was the one chosen for the first inspection, which was of the intensest. I permitted one to alight on my flannel pyjamas, which I wore in Dashabil in camp. No sooner had he alighted than his posterior was raised, his head lowered, and his weapons, consisting of four hair-like styles, unsheathed from the proboscis-like bag which concealed them, and immediately I felt pain, like that caused by a dexterous lancet cut, or the probe of a fine needle. I permitted him to gorge himself, though my patience and naturalistic interest was sorely tried. I saw his abdominal parts distend with the plenitude of the repast, until it had swollen to three times its former shrunken girth, when he flew away of his own accord, laden with blood. On rolling up my flannel pyjamas, to see the fountain whence the fly had drawn the fluid, I discovered it to be a little above the left knee, by a crimson bead resting over the insertion. After wiping the blood, the wound was similar to that caused by a deep thrust of a fine needle, but all pain vanished with the departure of the fly. Having caught a specimen of this fly, I next proceeded to institute a comparison between it and the tetsi, as described by Dr. Livingstone on page 56 to 57, Missionary Travels and Researches in South Africa, Murray's edition of 1868. The points of disagreement are many, and such as to make it entirely improbable that this fly is a true tetsi. Though my men unanimously stated that its bite was fatal to horses as well as to donkeys, a descriptive abstract of the tetsi would read thus. Not much larger than a common housefly, nearly of the same brown colour as the honeybee. After part of the body has yellow bars across it. It has a peculiar buzz, and its bite is death to the horse, ox, and dog. On man the bite has no effect, neither has it on wild animals. When allowed to feed on the hand, it inserts the middle prong of three portions, into which the proboscis divides. It then draws the prong out a little way, and it assumes a crimson colour as the mandibles come into brisk operation. A slight itching irritation follows the bite. The fly which I had under inspection is called Mabunga, by the natives. It is much larger than the common house fly, 
fully a third larger than the common honey-bee, and its colour more distinctly marked. Its head is black with a greenish gloss to it. The outer part of the body is marked by a white line running lengthwise, from its junction with the trunk, and on each side of this white line are two other lines, one of a crimson colour, the other of a light brown. As for its buzz, there is no peculiarity in it. It might be mistaken for that of a honey-bee. When caught, it made desperate efforts to get away, but never attempted to bite. This fly, along with a score of others, attacked my grey horse, and bit it so sorely in the legs that they appeared as if bathed in blood. Hence, I might have been a little vengeful if, with more than the zeal of an entomologist, I caused it to disclose whatever peculiarities its biting parts possessed. In order to bring this fly as lifelike as possible before my readers, I may compare its head to most tiny miniature of an elephant's, because it had a black proboscis and a pair of horny antennae, which in colour and curve resembled tusks. The black proboscis, however, there's simply a hollow sheath, which encloses, when not in the act of biting, four reddish and sharp lancets. Under the microscope, these four lancets differ in thickness. Two are very thick, the third is slender, but the fourth, of an opal colour and almost transparent, is exceedingly fine. This last must be the sucker. When the fly is about to wound, the two horny antennae are made to embrace the part, the lancets are unsheathed, and in an instant the incision is performed. This I consider to be the African horsefly. The second fly, which sang the tenor notes, more nearly resembled in size and description the tetsi. It was exceedingly nimble, and it occupied three soldiers nearly an hour to capture a specimen. And, when it was finally caught, it stung most ravenously the hand, and never ceased its efforts to attack until it was pinned through. It had three or four white marks across the after part of its body, but the biting parts of this fly consisted of two black antennae, and an opal-coloured style, which folded away under the neck. When about to bite, this style was shot out straight, and the antennae embraced it closely. After death the fly lost its distinctive white marks. Only one of this species did we see at the camp. The third fly, called Chafwa, pitched a weak alto-crescendo note, was a third larger than the housefly, and had long wings. If this insect sang the feeblest note, it certainly did the most work, and inflicted the most injury. Horses and donkeys streamed with blood, and reared and kicked through the pain. So determined was it, not to be driven before it obtained its fill, that it was easily dispatched. But this dreadful enemy to cattle constantly increased in numbers. The three species above named are, according to natives, fatal to cattle, and this may perhaps be the reason why such a vast expanse of first-class pasture is without domestic cattle of any kind a few goats only being kept by the villagers. This fly I subsequently found to be the tetsi. On the second morning, instead of proceeding, I deemed it more prudent to await the fourth caravan. 
Burton experimented sufficiently for me on the promised word of the Banyans of Kaoli and Zanzibar, and waited eleven months before he received the promised articles. As I did not expect to be much over that time on my errand altogether, it would be ruin, absolute and irredeemable, should I be detained at Unyanyembe so long a time by my caravan. Pending its arrival, I sought the pleasures of the chase. I was but a tyro in hunting, I confess, though I had shot a little on the plains of America and Persia. Yet I considered myself a fair shot, and on game ground, and within a reasonable proximity to game, I doubted not but I could bring some to camp. After a march of a mile through the tall grass of the open, we gained the glades between the jungles. Unsuccessful here, after ever so much prying into fine hiding-places and lurking corners, I struck a trail well traversed by small antelope and herd-beast, which we followed. It led me into a jungle, and down a watercourse bisecting it. But, after following it for an hour, I lost it, and, in endeavouring to retrace it, lost my way. However, my pocket-compass stood me in good stead, and by it I steered for the open plain, in the centre of which stood the camp. But it was terribly hard work, this of plunging through an African jungle, ruinous to clothes, and trying to the cuticle. In order to travel quickly, I had donned a pair of flannel pyjamas, and my feet were encased in canvas shoes. As might be expected, before I had gone a few paces, a branch of the acacia horrida, only one of a hundred such annoyances, caught the right leg of my pyjamas at the knee, and ripped it almost clean off, succeeding which, a stumpy colquoil caught me by the shoulder, and another rip was the inevitable consequence. And a few yards further on, a prickly aloetic plant disfigured by a wide tear the other leg of my pyjamas. And almost immediately, I tripped against a convolvulus, strong as rattling, and was made to measure my length on a bed of thorns. It was on all fours, like a hound on a scent, that I was compelled to travel my solar topi getting the worse for wear every minute, my skin getting more and more wounded, my clothes at each stage becoming more and more tattered. Besides these discomforts, there was a pungent, acrid plant, which, apart from its strong odorous emissions, struck me smartly on the face, leaving a burning effect similar to cayenne. And the atmosphere, pent in by the density of the jungle, was hot and stifling, and the perspiration transuded through every pore, making my flannel tatters feel as if I had been through a shower. When I had finally regained the plain, and could breathe free, I mentally vowed that the penetralia of an African jungle should not be visited by me again, save under most urgent necessity. The second and third day passed without any news of Maganga, Accordingly, Shaw and Bombay were sent to hurry him up by all means. On the fourth morning, Shaw and Bombay returned, followed by the procrastinating Maganga and his laggard people. Questions only elicited an excuse that his men had been too sick, and he had feared to tax their strength before they were quite equal to stand the fatigue. Moreover, he suggested that as they would be compelled to stay one more day at the camp, I might push on to Kingaroo and camp there until his arrival. 
acting upon which suggestion I broke camp and started for Kingaroo, distant five miles. On this march the land was more broken, and the caravan first encountered jungle, which gave considerable trouble to our cart. Pisolitic limestone cropped out in boulders and sheets, and we began to imagine ourselves approaching healthy highlands, and as if to give confirmation to the thought, to the north and northwest loomed the purple cones of Udoi, and topmost of all Delemi Peak, about 1,500 feet in height above the sea level. But soon after, sinking into a bowl-like valley green with tall corn, the road slightly deviated from north-west to west, the country still rolling before us in wavy undulations. In one of the depressions between these lengthy landswells stood the village of Kingaroo, with surroundings sufficient in their aspect of ague and fever. Perhaps the clouds surcharged with rain, and the overhanging ridges and their dense forests, dulled by the gloom, made the place more than usually disagreeable. But my first impressions of the sodden hollow, pent in by those dull woods, with the deep gully close by containing pools of stagnant water, were by no means agreeable. Before we could arrange our camp and set the tents up, down poured the furious harbinger of the Masaki season, in torrents sufficient to damp the ardour and newborn love for East Africa I had lately manifested. However, despite rain, we worked on until our camp was finished, and the property was safely stored from weather and thieves, and we could regard with resignation the raindrops beating the soil into mud of a very tenacious kind, and forming lakelets and rivers of our camping ground. Towards night, the scene having reached its acme of unpleasantness, the rain ceased, and the natives poured into camp from the villages, in the woods with their vendables. Foremost amongst these, as if in duty bound, came the village sultan, lord, chief, or head, bearing three measures of matama and half a measure of rice, of which he begged, with paternal smiles, my acceptance. But under his smiling mask, bleared eyes, and wrinkled front, was the visible soul of trickery, which was of the cunningest kind. Responding under the same mask adopted in this knavish elder, I said, The chief of Kingaroo has called me a rich sultan. If I am a rich sultan, why comes not the chief with a rich present to me, that he might get a rich return? Said he, with another leer of his wrinkled visage, Kingaroo is poor. There is no Matama in the village. To which I replied, that since there was no Matama in the village, I would pay him half a shaka, or a yard of cloth, which would be exactly equivalent to his present. That if he preferred to call his small basketful a present, I should be content to call my yard of cloth a present. With which logic he was fain to be satisfied. April 1st. Today the expedition suffered a loss in the death of the grey Arab horse presented by Said Burgasha, Sultan of Zanzibar. The night previous I had noticed that the horse was suffering. Bearing in mind what has been so frequently asserted, namely that no horses could live in the interior of Africa because of the tetsi, I had him opened, and the stomach, which I believed to be diseased, examined. 
besides much undigested matama and grass, there were found twenty-five short, thick, white worms, sticking like leeches into the coating of the stomach, while the intestines were almost alive with a number of long, white worms. I was satisfied that neither man nor beast could long exist with such a mass of corrupting life within him. In order that the dead carcass might not taint the valley, I had it buried deep in the ground, about a score of yards from the encampment. From such a slight cause ensued a tremendous uproar from Kingaroo, chief of the village, who, with his brother chiefs of the neighbouring villages, numbering in the aggregate two dozen wattled huts, had taken counsel upon the best means of mulcketing the Musungu of a full dotai, or two of Merikani, and finally had arrived at the conviction that the act of burying a dead horse in their soil without by your leave, sir, was a grievous and finable fault. Affecting great indignation at the unpardonable omission, he, Kingaroo, concluded to send the Musangi four of his young men to say to him that, since you have buried your horse in my ground, it is well. Let him remain there, but you must pay me two dotai of Makani. For reply the messengers were told to say to the chief that I would prefer talking the matter over with himself face to face, if he would condescend to visit me in my tent once again, as the village was but a stone's throw from our encampment. Before many minutes had elapsed, the wrinkled elder made his appearance at the door of my tent, with about half the village behind him. The following dialogue which took place will serve to illustrate the tempers of the people with whom I was about to have a year's trading intercourse. White man, are you the great chief of the Kingaroo? Kingaroo, aha, uh -huh, yes. White man, the great, great chief? Kingaroo, aha, uh -huh, yes. White man, how many soldiers have you? Kingaroo, why? White man, how many fighting men have you? Kingaroo, none. White man, oh, I thought you might have a thousand men with you, but you're going to fine a strong white man, who has plenty of guns and soldiers, two dot high for burying a dead horse. Kingaroo, rather perplexed, no, I have no soldiers, I have only a few young men. White man, why do you come and make trouble, then? Kingaroo, it was not I, it was my brothers who said to me, Come here, come here, Kingaroo, see what the white man has done. He has not taken possession of your soil, in that he has put his horse into your ground without your permission. Come, go to him, and see by what right. Therefore have I come to ask you, who gave you permission to use my soil for a burying ground? White man, I want no man's permission to do what is right. My horse died. Had I left him to fester and stink in your valley, sickness would visit your village, your water would become unwholesome, and caravans would not stop here for trade. For they would say, This is an unlucky spot, let us go away. But enough said. I understand you to say that you do not want him buried in your ground. The error I have fallen into is easily put right. This minute my soldiers shall dig him out again, and cover up the soil as it was before and the horse shall be left where he died. Then, shouting to Bombay, Ho, Bombay, take soldiers with jembers to dig my horse out of the ground, drag him to where he died, 
and make everything ready for a march tomorrow morning. Kingaroo, his voice considerably higher, and his head moving to and fro with emotion, cries out, Aquana, Aquana, Bana! No, no, master. Let not the white man get angry. The horse is dead, and now lies buried. Let him remain so, since he is already there, and let us be friends again. The shake of Kingaroo being thus brought to his senses, we bid each other the friendly quarry, and I was left alone to ruminate over my loss. Barely half an hour had elapsed, it was nine p.m., the camp was in a semi-doze, when I heard deep groans issuing from one of the animals. Upon inquiry as to what animal was suffering, I was surprised to hear that it was my bay horse. With the bull's-eye lantern I visited him, and perceived that the pain was located in the stomach. But whether it was from some poisonous plant he had eaten while out grazing, or from some equine disease, I did not know. He discharged copious quantities of loose matter, but there was nothing peculiar in its colour. The pain was evidently very great, for his struggles were very violent. I was up all night, hoping that it was but a temporary effect of some strange and noxious plant. But at six o'clock the next morning, after a short period of great agony, he also died, exactly fifteen hours after his companion. When the stomach was opened, it was found that death was caused by the internal rupture of a large cancer, which had affected the larger half of the coating of his stomach, and had extended an inch or two up the larynx. The contents of the stomach and intestines were deluged with the yellow viscous efflux from the cancer. I was thus deprived of both my horses, and that within the short space of fifteen hours. With my limited knowledge of veterinary science, however, strengthened by the actual and positive proofs obtained by the dissection of the two stomachs, I can scarcely state that horses can live to reach Unanyembe, or that they can travel with ease through this part of East Africa. But should I have occasion at some future day, I should not hesitate to take four horses with me, though I should certainly endeavour to ascertain previous to purchase whether they were perfectly sound and healthy, and to those travellers who cherish a good horse, I would say, try one, and be not discouraged by my unfortunate experiences. End of chapter 5, part 2